You're listening to That Worked, a show that breaks down the careers of top founders and executives and pulls out those key items that led to their success. I'm your host, Callan Harrington, founder of Flash Growth, and I couldn't be more excited that you're here. Today, we have Ed Porter. So I've been fortunate to know Ed for for a really long time. In my eyes, Ed is a pioneer in the inside sales uh, field, one of the best community builders that I've ever seen, and has started his own company, and he's just done a ton of stuff in here. So I'm so excited to break that down. Ed, uh, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to kind of see our paths collide in, in a similar fashion and a lot of the same beliefs of what we've grown to talk about years ago when we first started knowing each other to where we are today. So I love that it's coming around full circle and we get to do a lot more of this stuff together. I completely agree. And I'm super excited about it. What you, uh, in your own words, why don't you tell us what you're doing now? Yeah, right now I've uh, got my own company, Blue Chips CRO. So I'm a fractional chief revenue officer for companies, usually less than 20 million in revenue that are looking at growth. And uh, looking at growth may sound like a no brainer, but not everybody is looking to grow or looking at at the speed to grow when you consider investing and in, in what you're willing to invest and more importantly, what you're willing to change. So that's something that I've learned and I've been doing that for the past three years. I've spent my career really on all sides of the revenue organization from sales marketing to customer success and customer experience. And now I'm trying to take a lot of that and apply it to growing and aspiring companies. I love that. And do you mind diving in on that a little bit when you say, because I, this is interesting and it's very timely, I think, with the market right now where not everything is on top line growth. So much of it now is on strong unit economics, right? A year ago, VCs were going out and essentially saying, grow at all costs. Now it's, we want you to grow, but we want profitable growth. What does that mean to you? Yeah. So this has been very near and dear to me because my first job was in outsourced contact center. And I took the job when I was 19 years old and I was in college. So it was a part-time job for me answering phones. And then I worked my way up through management and through several levels of management. Well, in the outsourced contact center industry, your number one metric is profit margin. So I was pretty laser focused on profit. And it was when I went to the next company, which was a technology startup after that, where it was the complete opposite, where everything was on top line revenue. And it's like, well, what about the cost? Well, how much are we paying for the lead? What does customer acquisition cost look like? And so then I went to a company that was a literal product company. So again, we're back to gross margin and everything's on, we're reselling products and buying it cost A and marking it up and selling it at cost B. So I've been fortunate in those, in two big areas where it was very much everything. It didn't matter what your top line was. It really mattered what your, what your bottom line was. But then being in the world, even when I left that company and went to Smart Harbor, where we both spent some time and then have been working with companies for the past three years is it's very much been you know, sales at all costs. And I, I look at that as it's a little bit of a catch-22 because on one end, if you think about when companies raise money, well, they're raising money to spend on something in the future. So you see this with a lot of companies doing layoffs, unfortunately, and sometimes it's bad management, but other times it's also just, that's just a detriment to raising money and growing really quick because you can't sustain the growth. So now we're trailing back to like what you said about how do you really look at this from a profitability perspective? And when you start seeing valuations taper down, you know, there were some cases people were raising money last year at hundred X valuation, like 
holy crap, or no no revenue. So a lot of it's, you know, we no one has a crystal ball, but I think hindsight's going to tell us now that there has to be at least some kind of plan to have a contingency plan for profitability. I'm glad to see it finally come full circle. I'm starting to hear a lot more VCs are wanting to see NRR numbers on, on pitch decks, and they're really wanting to see lifetime value, the CAC to LTV. They're really critical about that so that founders can start thinking about this because it does have to do with profitability. It's you're getting customer renewals, if you will, and then how are you reinvesting that money back into building a better streamlined, better operationally sound business. So I'm starting to see that at least being thought of more in the seed rounds, maybe not so much pre-seed yet, uh, but in the seed rounds and certainly in the series A rounds is very much a lot of the, what's your CAC to LTV? That was maybe more of a checklist in the past. Now it's like, give me an action plan around it. What worked, what didn't, what are you going to do differently? Now being challenged a lot more because it comes from a profitability and sustainability perspective. Yeah. No, I, I I agree, and and I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it quite a bit, actually. You you kind of kicked it off there, but let's look at how did you get here? Where did where did this all start? I'll go back to school. There were two things that really happened in school, and I didn't really know it at the time. But one, every teacher on every report card up until when they stopped doing report cards said Ed socializes too much, so it was always a negative. I was always getting trouble for talking too much, and. I, you know, once you got old enough where clicks got established, I was never really in a click, but I had friends in, in all of them. So I've always considered myself a real social person, outgoing person. So that kind of, I guess, kickstarted a little bit about who I am and, and what I want to be. And when you start thinking about business, I don't know very many businesses that don't interact with people. So, you know, that kind of helped like, okay, I want to be in a position where I'm interacting with people. I enjoy it. I like it. And I, and I want to be there. The second part was when I got to high school, I didn't know what, but I know I wanted to have my own business. And I just didn't know what I wanted it to be. And even today, I'll, I'll still say, I don't know that I'm going to do this forever, but I was intrigued by business. I was I liked the understanding of of consuming, purchasing, selling goods, having that whole commerce side of things. So I knew I wanted to have it at some point. And I used to always think I was in high school. I didn't know what I was going to do. So I'll go to college. I'll get a degree and I'll figure it out then. And I did. And I got my degree and still didn't figure it out. But I was working full time while going to school in the outsourced call center. And what I just loved about that was I got to work with different clients, selling different products and services. And then more importantly, I got to work with a lot of different people, both on the client side, as well as my own team and employees. And call center is definitely a revolving door. Can we dive into that? So I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to, I want to zero back real quick because you said something that a lot of people don't get. And I say this all the time about insurance. People are like, why'd you like working in insurance? It's like, well, I actually love the whole thing. But you said something specifically that you, uh, one, I never realized that you were doing that while you were in college. I think that's excellent. And then you said you were enjoying selling. So you enjoyed being in this call center role. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. At the time, again, I, I started off just part-time while I was going to school full-time. And then when I first got an opportunity to become a supervisor and lead a team, it was full-time work. So I kind of had to make a decision and I wound up dropping to part-time in school, but and then I continued working full-time. So I was a supervisor and led a small team of 12 people, then got promoted to a manager and led a team of 35 or 40 people. And then I took on another account and had another hundred on top of that. So it like, kept growing as I, and this is all by the, by the time I was 20, 
26, 27 years old. I had almost 1,100 people, about 1,000 people rolling up to me across a couple of different sites. What was that like? At the time, I didn't know any difference. So at the time, it was, I, but I, I loved it. I loved being in a position where the things that I were was doing was impactful or like had the risk. I, I like risk. I think conservative play isn't for me. I'm a gambler as well. Not degenerate, but I am a gambler. Um, so like evaluating risk is something I like in, biz in business. And that was an area where working with that many people at different levels, you really learn a lot about how to engage people. And it's not about show and tell. Like I can't get on the phone and I could, but I can't do that with a thousand people to get on the phone and have them listen to a call and model it. And that just doesn't work. At that point, you got to work through leaders who work through leaders who work through leaders. So the whole scope of your job changes. So for me, it was very much intriguing. The days were not the same. Every day was different. And I got to learn at each different level how to work with the team beneath me, not at the I'm going to show and tell level. So it was when I left the contact center and it was through people that I knew at the contact center that started up a contact center recording software company. It was when I went there that I was like, oh, so this is what nine to five is like. <laughs> so that was a, you know, that was a shock to the system because I never really worked a nine to five job. And, and I did. So it was a breather, but I, I did miss a lot of the hustle and bustle um, at the time. You know, it sucked always being on back then, but I missed it. And it was, you know, it was a lot of things going on, a lot of activity, a lot of, a lot of plate spinning, so I, I enjoyed it at the time, and that absolutely molded me for what I want as what I, who I am as a manager, interacting with people and clients and employees, and really setting the tone for everything, every other job since then that I worked in. What were some of the things? All right, so you're 20 years old, and you've got a thousand people, multiple managers, right? Some people go their whole careers and don't have to manage managers, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just sometimes it's not as necessary. So you experience this at 20 years old. What did you do to make that an effective process? Uh, and what were the challenges that you had as you're learning this for the first time in doing that? Yeah. So that journey along the way. So I was probably 20 or 21 when I had my first team, when I was a supervisor directly managing individual contributors. And then I was probably 20, 22, 23, probably 23 when I got promoted. And then I had three supervisors underneath me. That was still a small enough team, but what I started to learn, and again, we all learn best through failure. So what I well, the tough thing that I had to learn at that point was I can't be the doer. I can't be the one working with the agents directly. Every once in a while, sure, to model a correct behavior to a, a supervisor, sure. There, there's some points where it makes sense. But in general, I can't be the one listening to calls and making sure that, you know, everybody's doing what they should. So it was through a supervisor on my team that kind of told me, hey, you need to back off a little bit. And we had some words, but ultimately he was spot on. And can you zero in on that? Yeah. Can you talk about that exact situation and what like what led to that? What happened? So what I got real granular with was listening to calls and on the sales side, it was relatively new to us 
So we had to be we had to be on. We were measured on conversion, and the client didn't. I shouldn't say they didn't care, but I was more critical of our conversion performance than the client was. So I wanted every call. I wanted it to be perfect. We ran through some scripts. Some well, it got to a point where. I started writing like this is what needs to be said on the on the opening. This is what needs to say on the closing. And I went word for word. I taped, printed it and taped it out and put it on everybody's cubes. This is and this is what I, I and I was listening to calls and I was going right to the agent to coach them. And I was completely bypassing the supervisors in a lot of these things. So what what happened? So you you're like I'm picturing this story of you have a standard that's very high and this is always a challenge it's a challenge for me every time where i'm like okay and i i to anybody that moves from individual contributor to a first-time manager the first thing i say is they're not going to be you and you got to understand that that's the first thing you need to understand is they are not you doesn't mean they can't surpass what you did but right now they are not going to be you so you're at this spot i know that game as well you started taping up these the scripts and and these reminders around there bypassing the supervisors what happened there? What happened next? And that was the point where the one supervisor had a conversation with me to say, we want to be on board, but I, I feel like you're just bypassing us altogether. So it was that conversation. It was after I printed everything out, posted it on the monitors, and then I had sent an email out to the supervisors that night to say, hey, when you guys come in in the morning, these, this is what I did here. So it was more just like an FYI, here's what I did. So, and then they came in and saw it. And then it happened to be later that week. It was just the supervisor coming into my office to just chat about something. And he's like, you have a minute. So then we had this conversation and, and that's where he said, he's like, that was a little abrupt and it would have been nice to be involved in, in the decision or at least the problem. And I kind of remember my response. I don't remember it word for word, but it was very much like, I don't have time. Like we don't have time to like sit and wait and talk about it. It's just, we got to go into action. So it was very much like, exactly like you said, is the expectation is so high. It's just like, you just got to go. So, but it, it took that supervisor. And what I'm thankful for too, is that the supervisor said it, because there's plenty of people. I'm sure you've been in this situation where maybe you don't have great trust or credibility in your boss, where it's really tough to go to your boss and say, you know, either you screwed up or I didn't agree with this. So his tactfulness behind it was was great, I, so I was appreciative of that. But it, if, when he first brought it up, of course, it was defensive mechanism. Again, I'm in my 20s; I know everything at this point. So, <laughs> so it's it's met with a lot of defensive reaction of, um, well, I had to do it. I didn't. I had time. You know, I had to get it done, and it was now. And so it was that conversation, and it probably took me from, let's just say, that conversation happened on a Wednesday. It probably took through the weekend into the next some point in the next week. So let's call it a week, maybe a week and a half after that conversation where I started to understand, like I stopped being pissed and started to kind of get more inquisitive. So I brought him in maybe a week or two, a couple weeks later, probably, and said, and where I started to kind of reflect to say, thank you for that. I didn't realize it until like yesterday, but this was really helpful. And now I'm curious. So now I want to, how would you have done it? How should I have done it? What would have been a better solution? What kind of, you know, thinking about speed being of the essence, how could I have done this in a quicker? And like we, he and I just started brainstorming. And it was, even as we were talking, he could see my point better. I could see his point better. And then we kind of closed that, 
but I can't remember the details of what actually was done, but I kind of committed and I said, Hey, would it be okay to kind of call on you next time? If I'm getting into this mode of solution solve, can I bring you in and work on it? And then let's partner on this together. So, and it was after that, that where I started to have more of a conscious reaction instead of a default response, it was more, let's think through pause, debrief, reflect, and kind of work through what's the best way to do it. And that helped shape a lot of my, my management experience. Not to say that I, I didn't screw up any other time after that, but I think the one thing that I've started that I pride myself on today that I learned at a relatively young age, both in physical age as well as in management experience, was being able to enroll, the art of enrollment, enrolling your team and your people in the process, being part of the decision-making, being part of the problem identification, solution-solving, brainstorming. You know, it's not about consensus, but it is about getting the best idea to go do right away. And it's, I'm better, I'm stronger with more people. And there's people closer to that line. So as I got higher up, I'm the one higher up. It seems ridiculous that I'm making decisions that are impacting the front line when I am the farthest removed. So I need to go way down the line and it takes more time. And I would rather take a little bit more time to fix a problem than to kind of create chaos and go up and down, up and down, up and down. This is where I subscribe to what hockey stick growth really means. There's a reason the stick is very wide and very long, and then it shoots up because it takes time to go figure out and iterate and brainstorm and maybe even test. And then once you figure it out, now you can grow quicker. So uh, that shaped a lot of my management experience from that supervisor telling me that and to kind of back off. Now it was, let's get my mind in the right place of who my customer is. And my customer is those supervisors at that point. And how do I get them to be better leaders to their teams? And how do I engage them in process? And so that experience was very helpful. I love that story. I mean, I think I, in hearing that, I hear a couple things. I hear one, I think probably one of the big things um, that wasn't overtly said in there was that you at least created an environment that was safe enough for them to come to you, which I think is I think is huge, right? And I definitely know what you're saying in that in those early part as a new manager, you just want to perform, right? You just want to execute. You just want to make sure that because like, you just you have so much in you, like oh, I just want to shoot straight to CEO. So I'm just going to I'm just going to blow everybody's numbers out of the water. And it's easy to get caught into that. And you don't you don't burn out as easy because you're so young. Where now it's like okay you're gonna burn out within a week doing that. But so I think that's an excellent uh, lesson. What I'm hearing is if you really want to build something impactful as a leader, you have to build consensus with the team. Not to say there aren't times where you're gonna probably have to make a decision in a in a vacuum because sometimes you do. But if you build that consensus and build that together then as a result, then you're going to have a much more sustainable practice moving forward. You're going to, because you have that buy-in and you have that, that compatibility, which I think is excellent. Is that essentially right? Do I have that right? I, the only thing that I would change slightly about that is there's a difference between consensus and feedback. So consensus is the next step in like when you're starting down this enrollment process. So on one end, it's engaging everybody to be part of the solution or how do we figure out what, what is the problem? Let's, 
let's peel this onion back. And having group think is detrimental, but is also beneficial. There's a line somewhere. So it's engaging the group. Now, once we've figured out that, now we can start brainstorming the solution. And then now it's consensus is, I look at consensus in terms of a mutual agreement to move forward. So I think that's what starts then the enrollment process of, you don't have to agree with it. I don't need to gain your consensus with it, but I want to gain your support in it. So that would be the the small change is that's how you get enrollment is it's less about agreeing and more about, you know, there's, there's plenty of ways to solve this problem. None of us know which way we're going to go with one and maybe it's not your way, but we're going to go with one. So that'd be the only thing is I think consensus doesn't have to be a requirement towards enrollment, but it certainly has to be kind of part of the process. I got you. Okay. So you've got the feedback. So you've got kind of that discovery phase on on what's going on. You have brainstorming for that solution phase. And then we have, uh, I, it's almost kind of alignment, right? We're not saying we all agree, but this is the, the way that we're moving forward. I do need your support on this. Um, and so that's kind of this three-step process if I'm hearing you. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Cool. Now that makes sense, you know, especially with a bigger team. You're not not everyone's going to agree, but if you don't have that support and you've got a lone wolf, a lone wolf meaning somebody that just they're going to do their own thing no matter what, it makes it really tricky. Um, it's hard to. I, I don't think that that team can perform at its highest level with that, in my opinion. Yeah, you're right. The lone wolf. I'm glad you talked about the lone wolf because that's a uh, you know we both and read the challenger sale and that was my first exposure to the lone wolf profile and what it is and it is hard it's hard when the team is isolated and that's often what happens so being able to manage that person or those people i learned that maybe about 10 years ago so pretty recent so i read the book and then started to learn how to manage that person and those people and it's it's tough because this is also what framed my Um, I've posted about this in the past, but um, management isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. How I manage Callan isn't the same way that I manage Ed or that I manage Joe. And that's just not how it works. So it's trying to understand how does each person want to be managed? And then how can you deviate from person to person to try and garner the same result? That's the same with the lone wolf. There's plenty of times where I don't know, I don't want to change the lone wolf because they probably won't change. I'm going to just try and Get, do what I can to support that person, make sure that the performance is there. And then that, then I'm okay letting them go, not letting them go like getting rid of them, but letting them go like, do your own thing. If you're going to go hunt, go hunt. We just need it to be closed at the end of the day, or we have goals that you got to hit. So as long as you hit them and then tell me how I can support you. And then often in that engagement, certain things start to improve. Do you have any specific examples that you could remember on uh, managing or your first experience with a lone wolf? Yes. My first was, I wasn't managing this person directly, but it was somewhat matrixed where it was an indirect report of mine. So it was with the software company. What I was, what I was tasked with doing there after I worked at the contact center company was building the channel division. So building the the software, the company sold software direct to end user contact centers. Well, we were trying to sell through value-added resellers or VARs, and it was reselling the product. So in that, inevitably, when I came in, it was the direct sales reps that reported up to a different VP, and I was trying to help work with them. 
to say, let's start these plans on what VARs we're going to go attack and how, how we're going to evaluate it and, and work with them and improve sales. So there was one of the sales reps who was absolutely the lone wolf. He was the whale hunter. He brought in a great deal of revenue for the company. And just that's just kind of how he operated. And there were parts of it where he would kind of bring me in on some partner deals. And I didn't really want to be in the deal as much as I'd like, tell me who the partner is. Let me go work with them. You go work the deal. Let me go find out who the CEO of the company is or the president and let's go talk there. So, so that was tough. And that was when I learned a lot about how I worked with him was different, how I worked with some of the others. I had another person on the team where she was extremely engaged and was like, here's a list of partners. What, let's divide and conquer. Let, here's what I want. Here's what I've, and like, she was all about it. Um, he was very much closed to the hit, private. It wouldn't share a lot of information. Wasn't great at CRM. And so that became a challenge to me. And I would say, I just kept complaining as opposed to try and find ways to work with the guy. I kept a good relationship with him, but I'll tell you, I don't have the, I didn't have at the time. And even to this day, I never really found a great way to work with them to try and get what I wanted. And, you know, I've thought about when I left the company, I've kind of thought about, there were two points in that software company where there were some challenging times. One of those was I couldn't get anything going with this guy. And I'm like, was it me? And my reflection on that was, it was me because I was trying to say, what can I get out of him and not the other way around? Not how can I help you? So it really was a different method where I was like, I'm trying to pull stuff from him. Like, give me the partner list. When were your last conversations? Here's what I'm going to go do. And it was a little bit more of this is how you're to appease me. And lone wolf certainly don't respond to that. They think of it as micromanagement. They think of get out of my cookie jar, like say the F away. So those were the wrong buttons to push. And that's ultimately where, why I don't think that worked very productively in working with him and his territory is because it was very much me. It was all, it was all about what I could get from him, not the other way around. Whereas the other ones, because I had what I've considered better productive relationships, it felt more give and take where I, I was willing to do a lot more for those people because they, they were helping me out too, but it was very much selfishly driven, very much selfishly driven. Yeah. You know, in hearing that, I think one of the things that, um, and it spells this, it does spell this out in the book, Challenger Sale, but I don't know, it's one of those things until you experience it, it's tough. The challenge is the lone wolf is typically productive. They typically are hitting pretty consistent numbers. The outcome. Yeah, exactly. They may not be hitting the inputs, but for whatever reason, they're closing deals or they're, they're they got the outcome locked and loaded and you know, what do you do? Do you argue about the semantics or do you just say, go do you? Yeah. I, and, you know, and, I, and I'm and i curious, this is something I've just I've, I've wondered um, is, is the lone like when you have a lone wolf like that, right? And they're not a bad culture fit. Is it more just somebody that just responds to a different type of coaching, right? Like where they may never be there. They're OK with that. They know if they don't hit their main quota and they don't hit their activity goal that, you know, it's going to be like it's hard to justify. Right. You, you've kind of got to hit one or the other um, quotas. Obviously, at the end of the day, what's going to be the most important. And I think most people I tend I used to be on the opposite side of this. But if somebody's a good culture fit and they're not hitting the exact activity numbers that that we expect, but they're hitting quota every time. They probably are doing something a little bit different that we we need to figure out and, and give to the rest of the team, right? But uh, but with the lone wolf in particular, I think if 
they're a bad culture fit or like just around numbers, that's where it gets really tough. That's a really challenging situation. Well, I'd even say the lone wolf that's a bad culture fit that is even killing the number. Again, I think this is about, it's a lot about team. You said this team culture fit. At some point, there's a detriment where that person, while granted they're bringing the lion's share of the revenue or way over their own quota, is still detrimental to the rest of the company when you start looking at the indirect results, which is turnover. And turnover is the slow killer. I learned this wholeheartedly in the contact center space. The reason why it hurts so bad is it doesn't show up on the PL. You don't know how much is actually being attributed. You can guesstimate. And even today, there's still data out there that's that says, yeah, you can 3x somebody's salary or 1.5x depending, and that's what the recruitment. That's all conjecture. And most people don't really know what it costs to really replace. And especially when you look at opportunity costs of delayed pipeline and things like that. So there's there's that line where even somebody knocking out of the park still needs to be examined to say, if you're doing more harm than good, and you're a great role model that the team wants to look up to, but they can't, and that you're not accessible, you know, there's a line somewhere, I guess is all I'm saying. But you're right. Is it even makes calls to question when they're just meeting their goal and they're the lone wolf and they're not a great culture fit? You know, you may need to make some changes. It's tough to make those changes. It is. It is. It's super difficult, especially when they're kind of like around with with the rest of everybody's doing. But um, so I want to I want to go back to something you mentioned uh, when you went to this company to the next company. And you went to your first nine to five. Why was that so challenging for you? In the environment before, there was always something on fire and going. And now there wasn't. It was like, what do I do? It kind of got to that point. It was nice to have a break. But the other part to that is it was new. So I was being onboarded where you're not living on your calendar. Things aren't always going. You come in and you're not really sure what to do. So there's part of that. As I started to get onboarded, it was just different to say, oh, well, everyone's done at five. All right, I guess I'll go home. So <laughs> um, it was kind of like one of those things where, where is everybody in the office? Like nobody's there. Okay. So it was a different experience to get used to. The other the other thing kind of compare and contrast is the company before. The company I was working for was headquartered in Utah. I'm in Ohio. So they were mountain time. My client was located in Kansas in central time, and I was on Eastern time. So that also kind of played into it where six o'clock, I'm getting seven o'clock, I'm getting emails and phone calls because that's still four and five o'clock um, at those time zones. So part of that was there too. The other thing was in an outsourced contact center, people are your product. And as sad as that sounds, is it's I need people on the phone in productive states servicing customers in order to get revenue. So it's very much a, I can look live and say, how am I doing? Current day, current hour, all of the data is there. And now when I went to the software company, it was Salesforce pipeline, right? It was all dashboards and reports from Salesforce. And a lot of the, because it was a channel sale, it was like not much changed every day. And so there, you know, I didn't need to look at a certain report like every couple of hours. So it was very much um, that shift too of this on-demand, where we're at today, where we're at right now, making real-time changes compared to, okay, well, I'm going to look at this weekly and start to say, 
what how does the dashboard change or meetings being taken so there was again that was a lot of shift too of not being on all the time and looking at where we're at right now so those are a couple of the big ones yep and i understand that i i understand that i almost need to be personally i need to be in a chaotic environment or at least i believe that i do i should say because when i'm not in it i get bored really fast and i just start looking for it and if i start looking for something there's not something i can take on it becomes that that becomes a bigger challenge and i become very unhappy in those in those environments um so i want to fast forward a little bit why the decision to go out on your own yeah. So interestingly enough, um, I love telling this story. So you and I both worked with somebody in the past, Shelly Stotzer, and Shelly is a career counselor. So I engaged her years be- before even going to Smart Harbor and kind of wanted to go through the path of what I want to do when I grow up. And we evaluated a lot of different things. Um, one of those was the solopreneur route. And what came from that was this probably isn't a good fit for you because for a couple reasons one is it's um while it can be hectic it's often short-lived so when you're working with clients it's recommendations and then they go execute she said what came out on my profile was that i like to be in it i like to be in it executing and seeing the fruits of my labor so that was kind of the one theory was this isn't a route for you so fast forward here i am three years later solopreneur but the, the irony in all of that was, you know, after Smart Harbor and the acquisition, it was, I didn't really know what I was going to do. And it was, you know, going back to kind of one of the things that I've loved about what I've done over the years is networking and building good relationships with people. So it started off of somebody called and said, hey, I've got, I could use your help with some things. And like, yeah, I could do this on a short-term basis. And it kind of started from there. And before I knew it, I was probably nine months into it, had one steady client and three others that just came up. And now it's like I find myself just people talking to and having a, a short-term need and we go into it. So a lot of it over the past three years has been continuously iterating. What is it I want to do? It was only about a year ago where I was like, this whole fractional world, fractional something is like, hey, that's a thing. So now then I started marketing myself as a fractional chief revenue officer. So, you know, that took a year and a half really to conceptualize and think about it. Hell, I didn't know how to price. I mean, you and I started talking in the beginning of how do we price these things? And I'm like, I have no idea. Like you price it on <laughs> hourly engagement. What hourly rate? I don't know. So this was this was very much just a culmination of things. Um, and where I've kind of rest my laurels on right now of why I think I've been enjoying it for the past three years is. I'm able to set a calendar on what is now my most precious commodity, which is time. So now I can be intentional about what time I spent where. There are some times where I've bitten off too much and I'm way too busy. And there's other times where I don't have enough in the pipeline and I've got too much free time. So there's a a peak and valley there, but it just has kind of materialized, never really thinking I was going to do this. Had a profile and an expert tell me this wasn't a great fit. So, you know, am I going to do this forever? Maybe not, but I really like the opportunities it's providing me now where I can do some other things. I've dabbled into investing and I've sat on an advisory board in the past. So these are some different areas and trying to drive some other income sources other than just one. So that's, that's advantageous. Um, I had an opportunity to go take another, a full-time job last year. And I did for a short period of time. And ultimately 
the board and I wanted to grow faster than some of the leadership and it just didn't work out. So like, I'm going to evaluate opportunities and, you know, we'll see where things go, but um, I'm enjoying where I'm at right now. I love it. I love it. All right. Last thing to leave our listeners on here. Um, and in particular, I want to zero in on if you could have that conversation with that new manager, when, when you were a new manager, what would you tell that person today? Yeah, I think the the one thing that I would I would probably have to tell my younger self, but then I would also need to tell my younger self, I'm going to be on you every day until you start recognizing it, is the people that you manage is about them. It's not about you. And if you if you keep going into that, it really helps reframe what's the role of a manager very closely resembles that of a counselor. So when you're the count, the epitome of being a counselor is getting, recognizing that the truth is in the question and getting the person to recognize their truth. And then to be, that's how you spark the art of enrollment. So this whole concept is how you manage teams. And it's about the questions that you ask to get them to go down the journey and then for them to recognize. So people are always more critical on themselves than they are with other people. So how do you get them in that process? I would have started that at a younger age. Now, if you're a philosophy person, then you could think, well, if you told your younger self that, you never would have made those mistakes. So would you have gone the same path or would you have gone a totally different path? So now it's the matrix, the blue pill or the red pill, right? But that's kind of what, what I would tell myself is when you get into that point of managing people, small team, big team, multiple levels, it doesn't really matter. It is about them. And it's about how do you meet them where they're at and, and then work together to kind of build that process of improvement. That was the hardest thing for me to learn. And I'd tell myself that. I love that. I think it's excellent advice. Um, that, the three-stage process, networking, all the things that you mentioned, uh, I thought was excellent today. And, uh, you know, I honestly, it was it was exciting for me to, because we never really dive into each other's full careers. So just for, for me to hear your career, um, there's even things that I, I learned that I didn't even know before. So I appreciate you being on the show. This was a ton of fun, Ed. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.